Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Mary Claire Haver, who's a board-certified OBGYN who's devoted her adult life to women's health. She created the online program, The Galveston Diet, and this is the first and only nutrition program in the world created by a female OBGYN designed for women in menopause. Today, we spoke about her new book, The Galveston Diet, her background and how there's been a systemic gap in where women of middle age are undervalued and research is underfunded. We spoke about perimenopausal symptoms, chronological versus endocrine aging, the flawed science around weight gain, hormones, the benefits of intermittent fasting, inflammation, macros, specific supplements that she finds beneficial to women in middle age, as well as the role of non-nutritive sweeteners and continuous glucose monitors. I hope you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did recording it. Well, welcome, Dr. Haver. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. So good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So it would be great to kind of start from the beginning. I, I would imagine that when you trained as an OBGYN, and I feel substan- I feel a lot of this because I used to think of menopause as a cliff. I was like, it's many years away. I don't need to worry about it. And I would imagine for you as a young OBGYN, kind of watching your patients go through that process, why do you think there's a lack of education emphasis for clinicians about this time in a woman's life? And yet we spend 40% of our lives in perimenopause and menopause. I think it's a systemic problem. And I actually didn't recognize it as a significant gap in my education and training until I went through it and realized I didn't have enough resources to help myself, let alone my patients. I hadn't kept up with kind of the latest of what was going on. You know, we have our board certification every year where we're presented with like the latest research articles and we have to do synopsis and answer some questions to make sure we're keeping up. And I went back over the last several years and looked at how many of those articles were specific to menopause. And it was maybe one out of 50 or 60 articles. And I think that menopause as a whole has been you know, it's all part of women's health. So I think women, women's research has been undervalued, underutilized, underfunded. And then when it comes to menopause, just layer on top of that, the bulk of my training for OBGYN, which is all important stuff. I'm not knocking what I learned more than 50% was obstetrics, you know, helping people get pregnant, make sure they stay pregnant, guiding them through a healthy pregnancy, intervening. If there's a problem, delivering the baby postpartum care, et cetera. And then the next, say, 40% of our training was all lumped together as gynecology, which includes everything else, gynecologic surgery, oncology, pediatrics, and menopause is just a tiny little sliver of that training. And most, they did a survey recently, I think it was Mayo Clinic, most OB-GYN residents getting out, the vast majority did not feel comfortable treating or discussing menopause with a patient. Yeah, it's interesting that I, in cardiology, kind of watched women transverse their forties. And I I was a young NP in my twenties. And I kept saying, gosh, there's a lot going on with these women. And then in their fifties, and this was in the time post women's health initiative where, you know, hormones were feared 
and just watching women navigate the challenges of aging and trying to navigate cardiology in that realm. And of course mm-hmm. we were very, you know, pro women's health initiative and we were referring everyone back to their GYNs because we didn't want to do anything related to that. But I just think about all the missed opportunities. And I, I think I'll, I reflect a great deal about my mom's generation. My mom's in her seventies and she was on HRT. And then at post WHI was not on HRT And I see a lot of my aunts really in many ways suffering because they're chronically inflamed, oxidative stress. They're doing all the right things, but there's been this reluctance to have the conversation about hormones as one example. And my mom said to me recently, I really hope your generation gets it right for the rest of us that, you know, what my generation has gone through, it's not replicated in your generation and subsequent generations to come. Well, I think part of the systemic problem was you know, you're lucky that your mother would even discuss this with you. You know, there was so much taboo around discussing the subject. And one thing I've noticed as I've grown on social media is that I have people from every walk of life. I have celebrities, I have, you know, moms who are staying at home with six kids, all like sharing the same story over and over again of blindsided by perimenopause and menopause, no one to talk to, feeling so alone. And social media has created this space where they realize, wait a minute, that's me. I did that too. And that the symptoms of perimenopause are very unique to the individual. Just because you have hot flashes doesn't mean you're not going to have joint pain or headaches or gastrointestinal changes. You know, it's a really wide variety of symptoms and very, very difficult to diagnose if you don't know what you're doing. Exactly. And that makes a lot of sense. And I I think for many women, there's this shame about talking about the aging process. They don't want to talk about the fact that they're no longer fertile or the changes they're seeing in their bodies. And so maybe this is a good segue to talk about some of the symptoms of perimenopause, perhaps the ones that are not as common because there runs the gamut. There are so Mm -hmm. many, but I, I feel like a lot of what I hear from female patients is the weight loss resistance. If they're having hot flashes, but I know there can be less common side effects that maybe people aren't making a lot of, meaning they're just like, oh, I'm having changes in appetite. And they just assume, oh, this is just part of part of aging. This is aging. just all of that related. It can be difficult to tease out what is chronologic aging and what is what we now call endocrine aging, you know, and there can be some overlap between the two. You know, we know, we all know that 85% of women will have hot flashes, 85% of women will have sleep disturbances you know, almost a hundred percent will have body composition changes, meaning where you store fat. It turns out just the weight gain, as far as what the number on the scale says, which we, you and I know that means nothing, you know, doesn't equate health is more to do with muscle mass loss, sarcopenia, you know, slowing down of your metabolism due to that rather than what's going on hormonally. But what menopause is doing is shunting fat now to the viscera not so much to the subcutaneous tissue. And that's where the health risks come from. But as far as symptoms go, I like to take it in a top down, (laughs) you know, so, you know, starting with the brain, we can have increasing headaches, migraines can get worse, new onset of neurodegenerative changes. So Alzheimer's and dementia, we start seeing an acceleration of those processes skin changes, dry skin, dry eyes, dry mouth. So dry mouth leads to dental changes. We see an increase of, I've talked to my friends in the dentistry world. Yes. Cavities, you know, root canals, all of that starts to accelerate at this age more to do with menopause than to do just with aging. 
So we have palpitations. There's estrogen receptors on the sinoatrial nodes. So we see disruptions in our heart rate. A woman will come to the ER with, you know, sweating and having rapid heart rate. You know, she gets a million dollar workup for heart attack and no one even discusses that this is probably how your menopause is presenting. You know, once they rule out the other things, which is important. So uh, joint pain is another thing. Itchy ears is one thing that so many women, I've had that video went viral when I talked about itchy ears and menopause, itchy in other places of your body. It's mostly due to the dry skin, but really like joint and hip pain and increasing autoimmune disease, cardiovascular changes. We know that our lipid panels change with menopause and our risk for subsequent cardiovascular disease increases as well. It's really interesting that it's a systemic thing. I think for many people, they don't realize we have estrogen and progesterone receptors and testosterone receptors systemically. It's not just related to the genitourinary symptoms. Right. And so one thing that I think many women are surprised by, and you touched on it, is this muscle loss with aging that, Mm -hmm. you know, makes us more susceptible to becoming insulin resistant and, Mm -hmm. you know, this body composition changes. So obviously, you know, menopause is a privilege. I know this is something you say in your book that understanding the aging process, you know, it's navigating these changes and trying to make peace in many ways with things that are ongoing in our bodies. So kind of the conventional way that I was trained in, and I'm sure you were trained in as well, is the science of weight gain is largely a calorie deficit or calorie surplus. How has that changed for you clinically as you've been navigating your own career path and then also perimenopause into menopause? I've had a lot of long conversations with obesity medicine specialists, and I've done a lot of reading in this area. And also when I went through my nutrition training, which I did in 2018, I learned it just kind of ripped the bandaid off of everything that I thought I knew about why people are overweight. And it's, there's just, it's a chronic disease. And there's so many factors that feed into this. We can't just look at it and put the onus on the patient that she has a weight problem because she's lazy or she's not trying hard enough or she's, you know, of course my patients are all female. So this also applies to, if you have any male listeners as well, but, and it just really opened my eyes to my own prejudice, to my own, because I, before menopause, other than pregnancy and the first couple of years of college really hadn't struggled with the weight issues. So I was coming from a very privileged place of not understanding all of the factors that go into this and, you know, all the hormones that are involved, insulin, cortisol, leptin, ghrelin, PPY, cholecystokinin, they all feed into our hunger, our satiety, our cravings, our emotions. It just, you know, and it, everything in their environment is we live in an obesogenic environment you know, the way foods presented, what healthy foods are available? Can you afford them? Do you have access? You know, what kind of learning training do you have to understand how these foods are going to affect your body? And just that our society and consumerism is trying to put a one size fits all, you know, here's the perfect diet for you, or here's the perfect supplement for you. And it's just, we're human beings and we're very, very individual. And so what I try to do in my clinic is help my patients individualize this for them so they can be as healthy as possible. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. Product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's dranna.com Cynthia and get 10% off your first purchase. I think it's really important because the kind of conventional prevailing mantra in cardiology was, oh, just eat less and exercise more. That will take care of it. That, that's, that's the basis OB-Gen, of the problem. Work out more, eat less. That yeah. Was it. And it's interesting to me that my own perimenopause journey gave me great pause, much to like you you were stating, I never had a weight problem, lost weight after my pregnancies pretty easily. And then I hit the wall of perimenopause and all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, nothing that I used to know works and is not working. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be all doing. Things. Nothing's working. <laughs> and so, you know, that is what led me to eating less often because I had been telling my patients eat snacks and mini meals and, you know, this is going to stoke your metabolism. And this mm-hmm. is so important. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, time out the frequency at which we are eating in middle age, maybe we can get away with it in our twenties and thirties and teenagers. I have teenagers at home and they have voracious appetites, but does not serve me at this stage of life. And it sounds like through your process, through this additional training you went through that at some point, intermittent fasting became part of the discussion that you were having with your patients. How did you come to being a fan of intermittent fasting as a GYN? I'd heard about it. So when I started my own journey through this, it was 2017. And of course I'd heard about fasting. I think Fung's book had come out by then. And, but I kind of dismissed it as a fad. You know, I loved breakfast. I got eight as soon as I woke up in the morning, it was just, you know, a normal part of my day. But when I, you know, gained the weight through perimenopause and I went to the nutrition, like PhD nutritionists at the university I was employed at, 
I delivered their babies. We were all friends. And I said, Hey, what's going on? And they kept pointing me to information about inflammation and aging. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole and I, I stumbled onto Mark Matson's data, which you're probably familiar with of, you know, neurodegenerative disease and inflammation and lowering systemic inflammation through the fasting process. And I was absolutely, you know, fascinated. And I thought, well, let me give this a try and, you know, see, because everything I experimented on myself first before, and then I was just like, Hey, to my patients, you want to try this, you know, little thing I'm working on. And they're like, yeah, sure. So really it was just reading and looking at his references and reading those articles and just really seeing, okay, there's some solid science here. It doesn't seem to be harmful and this may help. And it was less about just weight loss and fat loss and more about lowering chronic inflammation levels so that you became more efficient as a human being and more resilient. Yeah. It's really interesting because it sounds like for me, it was around 2016 and, and Jason's book was out. And I remember that was the book and I always give Jason credit. That was the book that gave me the courage to feel very comfortable as a clinician, starting to talk to my patients about it. And then, you know, leaking into my business that I started, you know, all perimenopausal, menopausal women. And the one thing I always tell people is, People come to intermittent fasting out of curiosity after a desire to change body composition, and they stay for all the other benefits, you know, the cognitive improvement, the mental clarity, the having more energy. And you mentioned in the book, you talk quite a bit about the neuroplasticity and BDNF. And so when you're working with your patients and talking to them about fasting, what do you find to be the reasons why they continue doing it? I I find for so many people, they just feel so much better. They're like, Mm -hmm. I had no idea that eating more frequently was contributing to why I had no energy. So they, they of all, we have three phases to our program and it's the one that scares them the most if they've never tried it, because we were brought up in this culture of, you know, three meals a day and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And, but it actually, once they caught, once they get there, it is the easiest part of, you know, the thing they can stick to the most, they go back to it first. If they, you know, life gets in the way, if they fall off the wagon, it's the first thing they jump back into and they enjoy it. It's not a big deal. They can do it on vacation. They can set their schedule around it. And they really, they think better, like the brain fog that so many of us complain of in menopause seems to be so much better while you're fasting. And that really keeps them, you know, sticking to it. Yeah. What is the more common reason or reasons why we have more inflammation and oxidative stress in middle age? What is mitigating that in your clinical opinion? So, you know, there's kind of two things we talked about. There's the chronologic aging, uh, just the aging process. So, you know, when you look at the longevity experts and all of their research, when they look at the, you know, the actual DNA strands and how the telomeres are wrapped around the histones, you know, and how those start breaking down, like that's just part of the chronologic aging process. And I'm really excited to read some of those books and data as it comes out of things that we can mitigate nutritionally to slow that process down. We're all going to die one day. We're all aging, but it's, you know, can you live as healthy as possible without, hurting, being able to think and take care of yourself for as long as possible, you know, not being a burden on your family, which is my big goal. And then the second is the, well, there are three big things. The second, and then is the endocrine aging for us, it's menopause. Okay. The drop in our testosterone, the drop in estrogen, the drops in progesterone, you know, the wild Mr. Toad's wild ride through perimenopause to the bottoming out, you know, to the less than 1% of the estrogen levels that we used to have in our normal reproductive cycles and how that 
dramatically affects the inflammation process. And third is the environment, you know, our everything, everything, our sleep patterns, our food choices, our what's available to us, our the stress that we're going through in our lives, pandemics, childbearing, kids leaving home, job changes, you know, aging parents. It's just, you know, all of that feeds into a negative feedback cycle for a lot of us. Yeah. And it's interesting. I actually interviewed Dr. Amy Killen a few weeks ago, and she actually refers to menopause as a disease state, which was the first time I'd actually heard someone call it that, but she was explaining that so much changes in our bodies physiologically, that maybe if we start referring to it as a disease state, it'll get the attention it deserves to have. It deserves. So if you take a woman who goes through menopause at 45, and you take a woman who goes through menopause at 55, and they're identical twins, everything else is the same. The woman who went through menopause earlier is going to have a much higher risk of heart disease, of autoimmune disease, of Alzheimer's, of dementia, you know, of seven of the top 10 leading causes of death, of cancer. She's not going to live as long and not live as well. And so, yes, menopause is a natural process, but the later you are when you go through, the healthier you are. Yeah, it's really interesting because I I know the average age in the United States is 51 for menopause, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I'm seeing many of my girlfriends thinner, you know, people who are effectively privileged, they have the ability to do all the things to maintain their health going through at 47, 48, 49. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain that per se, but it's interesting that when I'm looking at research, it'll sometimes say smokers sometimes go through earlier you know, sometimes people that have more adipose tissue, more estrogen tissue may go through a little later. You know, I think so many variables, whether or not it's genetically mediated, environmental, environment and genetic. So yeah. they kind of play against each other. Definitely they look at when your mom went through, that's going to kind of give you some kind of idea. Of course, it's not perfect, but if your mom went through at 45, you need to be on top of this. You know, it's going to come early for you more than likely. Um, and there, you can start changing nutrition, you know, look different supplementation so that you can set yourself up better than she was able to do for herself. You know, and of course, hormone replacement therapy goes a long way, but it's not perfect. It's not the panacea for everything. Um, But it is definitely, I spend so much time on social media, just trying to educate people so that they can be informed enough to go and ask the right questions to their healthcare providers. And I think that's really important because I still find that, you know, I was coming out in 2002, so young nurse practitioner, and that was when WHI came out mm-hmm. and there's a whole generation of was clinicians. when I was in training. Mm-hmm. Yep. A whole generation of clinicians who in many ways were fearful to prescribe patients who were fearful to take. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe the pendulum is swinging the other direction. And, and I agree with you helping to educate people so they can work in conjunction with their healthcare provider to make the best decision for themselves. And no one needs to suffer. I think that's the the big take-home message is just making sure people know there are options. When we're talking about inflammation, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about sugar and talk mm-hmm. about alcohol mm-hmm. and talk about things like gluten, which I know for many people can be, maybe they aren't problematic in our twenties and thirties, but as we are getting older, our relationship with some of these more inflammatory substances can become problematic. Yes. So definitely there are one-to-one correlations between the sugar, which, you know, it's the rapid rise of blood glucose leading to an insulin spike that leads to the increasing inflammation levels. If we can slow down the absorption of sugars because they're wrapped with fiber in a a handful of berries rather than in high fructose corn syrup, you know, it's a big difference. And I don't want to vilify sugar as 
you know, in general, but there's a definite correlation between the amount of sugar in your diet, especially in the form of a simple sugar or high fructose corn syrup and the inflammation levels. And it seems to be directly related to the rate of absorption and your insulin levels. Yeah. It's really interesting that, you know, when I'm talking to women about, you know, anti-inflammatory nutrition, which I know is another tenant of your book, Mm -hmm. Galveston diet, and really helping them understand the way that our body is processing certain different types of macronutrients. So protein, fat, and carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. and understanding that changing our relationship with our carbohydrates is really critically important. You know, we can't eat as much And sometimes we have to be really cognizant and careful and conscientious about what it is we are consuming, you know, green leafy vegetables, obviously they have carbohydrates are very different than having bread or pasta or rice, which is going to evoke, you know, a greater increase in blood sugar and then result in insulin secretion as well to bring your blood sugar back down. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Having to, and I do a lot of education in the book, trying to teach people about that process and you know, giving them alternatives to enjoy that won't, you know, won't be as deleterious to their blood sugar levels and the potential inflammatory increase. Yeah. It's really interesting. And in the book you talk about, and I think for many people, they don't understand, you know, we look at food labels for packaged foods and understanding Mm -hmm. net versus total carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. I actually think this is something that's really important because I always say the processed food industry really is focused on trying to obscure the amount of carbohydrate we're consuming. So they always focus on net versus total. And I always say total is, you know, net is a cheat. You want to focus on total. It's certainly very transparent. What are some of the tricks that you will help your patients with when they're trying to lower their carbohydrate intake to be able to mitigate these blood sugar fluctuations that they're experiencing? So one of the things that we do is we talk about every meal and snack should have a combination of a healthy fat, a complex carbohydrate and some kind of a healthy lean protein. And that combination seems to be the magic to make all it's, you know, the fat and the fiber in the complex carb will slow the absorption of whatever sugars were naturally in the food, which is fine. The protein affects the other GI hormones in ways that decrease your satiety and make you feel fuller longer and decrease the carbohydrate cravings. And so Typically, most women in the US eat very, very little protein with breakfast. They usually have a carb oatmeal or, you know, cereal or toast or something. And then lunch is usually a salad with just a little bit of protein. And then they save their protein for dinner where they'll have their piece of chicken or steak. And what I tell patients is like, look, you've got to eat protein throughout the day. Your body only really can process 30, 35 grams, especially the older we get at a time. And then it, then those amino acids will be stored as fat. And so your breakfast should have 20, 25, your snacks should have 10, like each meal and snack should at least have 20 for a meal and 10 for a snack. If you're dividing that out throughout the day, I mean, not try to stack all your protein for your one evening meal. And that will make all of those hormones work better together. So you feel full, you're not craving crazy things. You're not having carb cravings, you know, it just really, and the, and making sure you're getting the, the fats. Cause we were all fat phobic, <laughs> you know, the way we were brought up and I eat so much avocado now, 25 year old me would be horrified, you know, by the amount of fat I eat in my diet a day. And I'm just chucking on nuts and avocado all day long. <laughs> Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, 
which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can can consume element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Well, and it's interesting because I think this is what leads to so much macro confusion. You know, people were fearful of fat for a long time. Now we're saying, eat the fat. It's going to help with satiety. It's going to, you know, your, your taste buds will be lit up. Now Mm -hmm. we're working on the carbohydrate piece. And I do find most, if not all females eat too little protein, Mm -hmm. too much of the wrong types of fats and too many carbohydrates. And once they start redistributing things, they, those satiety mechanisms that you're alluding to do get triggered. And then people are full. Like I always say, if I eat enough animal-based protein, I'm full. I'm not thinking about dessert. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just 
comfortably full. But I think for many people, they've walked around it for so many years, eating too little fat, not enough protein. Mm -hmm. And they're wondering why they're hungry an hour or two after they eat a meal. And it has a lot to do with the lack of protein, the lack of healthy fats. Mm -hmm. Agree. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you allude to in the book, you were talking about some specific hormones, which I think are interesting in terms of the ones that are activated in the gastrointestinal tract that will help with satiety. I found this section in particular, really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about MPY and CCK, and it's almost like an alphabet soup, but I promise listeners (laughs) you do a really nice job of explaining this in the book. So these are hormones that are secreted in different areas of our gastrointestinal tract in response to what their, their sensors, right? In our GI tract, in the stomach, in the small intestine, large intestine that are looking for protein, that are looking for fats, that are looking for carbs. And so when it senses that those macronutrients are there, it will send signals to our brain saying, okay, we're good. And one of the most powerful triggers in a positive way that'll make us not hungry is, you know, protein is one of them. And so hormone PPY is one of the ones that is linked to our carb cravings. And so getting enough protein, you know, throughout the day will turn that little signal to your brain off. Now, remember all of these were evolutionarily put there to drive us to our next meal. Remember, we grew up as hunter-gatherers when food was not available 24-7, there was no McDonald's, there was no Walmart, there, you know? And so our all of our body was like telling us to go find food so we don't starve to death. And so given that the world has changed, we have to change the way we think about food. And like you said before, what we got away with in our 20s and 30s just isn't working anymore. And so learning about these hormones and how to make them work for you so that you're not starving after the next meal and just wiping out the pantry because you don't know what to do. Yeah. And it's really interesting. There was a study done out of University of Sydney, and it was talking about weight gain during the menopausal transition, evidence for protein leverage. And what's interesting is they were talking about the physical changes. So phenotypic changes, the body weight gain, higher fat mass and less lean muscle mass. And so much of it was attributable to lower dietary protein intake was associated with higher energy intake. Meaning if you're not hitting those protein macros or that protein threshold, your body will look for ways to get more food in. And it's probably going to be the wrong types of fats and too many of the processed carbs and lead to weight gain. So it's very interesting, this low estrogen state with high FSH, so follicular stimulating hormone, Mm -hmm. it actually adversely impacts muscle breakdown. And so if you're not getting enough protein in your diet, it'll actually lead you to eat more carbs and more of the wrong types of fat. So it's amazing the way our bodies work to try to acclimate to these changes, but understanding that physiology explains why, you know, if your patients are eating these minuscule meals that are higher carb earlier in the day, and then they eat maybe a bigger meal at dinner, but then their body is just like, I haven't gotten enough food all day long. I'm just going to continue wanting to eat. People are feeling the need to be in their pantry. They're snacking, they're eating, you know, more meals after their meals and not understanding why that's happening. Right. So obviously your book is the Galveston diet and it's Mm -hmm. three key areas. We've touched on intermittent fasting. We've kind of alluded to the anti-inflammatory diet, but let's talk about the book because I think you've really done a nice compilation of putting together these strategies that you've worked on with your patients over the last several years. So yeah, the first, we have three uh, actions, what we call. Uh, So the first is intermittent fasting. And when we 
When I introduce people to the program, I tell them, you have the rest of your life to figure this out. Don't try to make all of these changes at once. Read the science, let it sink in, read it again, listen to it on audio, however you learn. I've, you know, on our online program, I try to provide all the different resources Um, because I know adult learners sometimes need to hear it, read it, see it, touch it, you know, see it graphically. So we have all of that available online and let the science sink in because, you know, just handing you a meal plan. Sure. You'll do okay for six weeks until that meal plan goes away. And then you, you don't understand why I asked you to make these changes that are going to benefit your health. So intermittent fasting is the first thing. And I'm like, conquer that, get that solid set, normal part of your life before you ever move on to the next thing. So the next phase we introduce our patients or our students to is the anti-inflammatory nutrition, starting to think about which foods uniformly are inflammatory for everyone. Things like, you know, artificial colors, artificial flavors, you know, our gut microbiome does not know what to do (laughs) with these artificial ingredients. And it really causes gut disruption. You know, we touch on that in the book as well. And then the things that really promote an anti-inflammatory state. So leafy greens, vegetables, fruits, you know, eating the rainbow is a big thing we talk about in Galveston diet. Like the more colors you have, the more different micronutrients you have creating those colors. And each of those has an individual nutrient profile. So trying to eat a variety of foods, different colors, you know, staying in the fruits, vegetables, lean meats, legumes, and why these foods and the properties in these foods make them an anti-inflammatory. We talk about anthocyanins and the different chemicals in the foods and that are will hopefully decrease inflammation. Now, there's some foods that are pretty neutral um, that don't promote inflammation, but they don't really fight inflammation. Like a lot of the lean meats, they're perfectly fine, but they're not like considered to be anti-inflammatory, um, but they're not going to promote much inflammation if you eat them in moderation in the right ways. And then the third part is what we call fuel refocusing. And that's when we do a really deep dive into macronutrients, micronutrients. Um, we have a weight loss kind of macro settings that we, we offer, but then if you're, if you're just coming here to be healthy and you don't really have a weight issue, you know, we have other macro goals that we set that are, we call our maintenance goals that they can kind of follow lifelong. And we talk a lot about the micronutrients. You know, I talk a lot about fiber and magnesium and, you know, how a lot of us are deficient in these things and how to, you know, choose foods to increase those levels. And, and we talk about supplementation as well. And so, you know, given my nutrition background, most of your nutrition should come from food. We should really only supplement when there's a gap and we can have gaps for many reasons. We're allergic, we're intolerant. We, you know, to certain foods, we don't have access. We live in a food desert. You know, we don't have enough money to afford to eat, you know, whatever, but supplements, you know, whole foods should come first. Your nutrition should come from food first and supplements. We just supplement any gaps that are there. And do you have specific supplements that you like as a general recommendation, not asking you to say, this is what everyone needs, but do you have specific supplements that you really like to utilize with your clients? I do. So the vast majority of us are deficient in the amount of fiber that we get in our diets per day. For a woman, it's somewhere between 25 to 35 grams of fiber. I easily get 25 in my diet every day, again, from the avocados, nuts, seeds, but I will supplement to hit 35. So I do Galveston diet does have a fiber supplement. I do supplement collagen. I don't recommend it for everyone. And to be honest, 
I started collagen supplementation for vanity reasons. <laughs> I was frustrated with the cellulite and I had read some pretty good research on how the appearance of cellulite can be improved with this uh, certain um, collagen. So I do use that, but just recently that same collagen has been found to help with osteoporosis. So now I feel better about myself <laughs> that it has a medical indication. Omega-3 and D and vitamin D are another two that I quite often will recommend. A lot of people aren't getting enough or don't have access or don't like it. You know, fatty fish, which is probably the best, you know, source of vitamin D, I mean, out there as well as omega-3. And so, and we're, you know, we're covering our skin. We're trying to protect ourselves against skin cancer. And so we're not, about 80% of my patients are deficient in vitamin D, really, really low. And and so I do, I offer a lot of vitamin D supplementation as well. Magnesium is one that we are, about 50% of us are deficient. However, there's some medicinal properties when you go over. And so for some people, it can help with sleep and there's multiple forms of mag out there. And it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. And so for the one that crosses the blood brain barrier, the best. Will, so if I'm recommending for sleep, I'll usually recommend a glycinate or an L-theranate to try to get the most, you know, the highest bioabsorption and then across the blood brain barrier to work on the neurons. Those are some really good suggestions. Where do non-nutritive sweeteners fall into your program? These are, you know, whether yeah. it's sucralose, aspartame, stevia, et cetera. So the ones that are artificial, like the aspartame in that family, I, I advise people to stay away from them. They really are gut disruptors. There's lots of great research around that, that I fully believe. So we stick to stevia and my fruit for sweeteners and our recipes or, but I tell them not to use those until they break the fast. They can stimulate and start an insulin response from the tongue receptor because they do stimulate the sweet receptor on the tongue. So we usually recommend not utilizing those until after you break your fast. Sucralose, it can be a GI disruptor. I'm kind of on the fence about that one. I don't use it. Some of my followers really like it. And a couple of recipes, it's, you know, I don't feel strongly about that one, but I, other people have told me it gives them diarrhea. It's interesting because there was a study that came out in the fall talking about non-nutritive sweeteners. So it was saccharin, which I don't know where yeah. that's used saccharin, stevia, sucralose, aspartame, and the impact, this was in a rodent study, but it was looking at oral glucose tolerance mm -hmm. and how disruptive it was in terms of the gut microbiome and blood sugar variability, which I found really interesting. And it was just like a 28 day study. So I completely agree with you that being careful about these non-nutritive sweeteners, being really conscientious about them. And certainly you probably get the same questions that I do. People say, does this break my fast? And I always talk about mm -hmm. that cephalic phase insulin response. I'm like, if it's sweet, don't consume it in a fasted state and assume that your body doesn't think food is coming because even though it's stevia and yes, I know your blood sugar, your glucometer, your CGM didn't blip. That doesn't mean that your body doesn't perceive something is coming something in the terms of food. Do you utilize any continuous glucose monitors or glucometers in, in your program or with your patients to help them kind of navigate food choices or stress? I haven't yet. So in my clinic, I have the, I have a body scanner, the in-body scanner. So I'm able to measure muscle mass, visceral fat mass. And we do a lot of discussion around, around that. I have a couple of patients who have gotten 
the continuous, the online version of the continuous glucose monitors, it's really hard for an OBGYN to get insurance to pay for that outside mm-hmm. of pregnancy. So, you know, they have to see a specialist and how, you know, so some patients are just motivated and with their own money have gotten, I've, I've helped them navigate, but it is just that it's price restrictive for most people to be able to utilize that. So I don't use it as a standard part of, of treating patients, but I encourage it if they want to spend the money and that's what they want to do. I'll try to help guide them through it. Yeah. It's my hope, you know, as metabolic health kind of becomes a a bigger and bigger topic for clinicians and patients, helping people understand they, you know, this is your N of one. This is your body's response to food, stress, poor quality sleep, exercise, and glucometers, I think can sometimes bridge that gap because they're so much less expensive. And I agree with you. I wish CGMs were covered by insurance companies because to me, it's so insightful. Sometimes people don't know that they are becoming more insulin resistant and this can really be super helpful. Well, Dr. Haver, I want to be super respectful of your time. I know during a book launch, you have a lot of media that's stacked up. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, where to get your book, which goes on sale next week, which is so exciting. So it is uh, galvestondiet.com is our website. I am Dr. Mary Claire on Instagram and on TikTok. If they want to follow me, I do a lot of education around menopause, around nutrition, around, I do a lot of Q and A's there. It's so much fun for me to connect there. Um, And on our website, if you'd like to come and visit me as a patient, if you're in Texas, come on down to the Houston area. I'd love to see you. There's a link there and we have a YouTube channel as well. So we're pretty much, you know, all social media channels. Wonderful. And the book link is on our website. It is available for pre-order now if if you're willing to wait till January 10th. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure connecting with you. Thanks for doing such great work and being an advocate for women. Thank you so much. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 